It is Easter weekend. This is the high point, the highest point on the church calendar every year. This is the hinge on which our entire faith swings. This Easter weekend, this comes to us like a parent that goes into the bedroom and pulls back the curtains to let the sun beam in and wake the child out of their deep, death-like sleep. The gospel comes like a ray of light into our life, and it lifts our hearts, and it never ceases to lift our souls. This is the good news that we celebrate this weekend, and it shines ever brighter on the backdrop of the constant, chronic, slow, and dragging disappointments uh, that come with uh, life in a pandemic and the difficulties that we are all enduring. The good news of the gospel comes in. And on the backdrop of all of this chronically bad news, it comes to you this day and it announces uh, such grace like like a subwoofer dialed to 11 that just causes your insides to shake. If you stop long enough to meditate on the goodness of our God, the wonder of his grace and his love towards us. So let's get, let's get to the good news, shall we? Mark chapter 14 and 15. I'm going to read some excerpts uh, from both chapters this morning to take us through uh, the narrative that we celebrate on this Good Friday, the crucifixion. Starting in chapter 14 and verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb... His disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And Jesus sent out two of his disciples, and he said to them, Well, go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And whoever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may prepare the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared and there make ready for us. So his disciples went out and they came to the city and they found it just as Jesus had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it and said to them, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then they came to a place that was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further and he fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, in all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now Jesus' betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to Jesus and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And he laid their hands on Jesus and they took him. And they led him away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. And the chief priests stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. He answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? 
And Jesus said to him, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and he said, what further need have we have of witnesses? You've heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And some of them began to spit on him and they blindfolded him and they beat him. And they said to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palm of their hands. And as soon as it was the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they led him away to be delivered over to Pilate. And now it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above him, the king of the Jews. And with him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And so the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by, they blasphemed him. And they were wagging their heads. And they were saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and will rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes. They said, he saved others. Himself he can't save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him reviled him. And when in the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by when they heard that, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. And then some of them ran and they filled a sponge of sour wine. And they put it on a reed and they offered him to drink. And they said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last. And then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So that when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last... He said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is God's word. Now, as a kid, I did not understand why this was called Good Friday. I thought maybe we should call this anything but Good Friday. But you want to know something? Our Christian faith stands in opposition, totally in contrast to all the other religions in the world, which basically have a God who is transcendent above all things with his arms crossed, saying, do the following things to save yourself. But what makes Good Friday good is that our God condescended and wrapped himself in the dirt of his own creation and human flesh. He came to save us. Religion is man's endless path to find God, and Christian faith is God's amazing grace come to man to save us. The babe who cried in the manger cried out on the Roman cross. This is the full circle of the amazing grace that makes Good Friday so good. You know, the nature of love is that it's costly. Love by nature is an expression of just life-oriented away from the self toward another. And again, this is what makes Good Friday so good. If you say you love somebody, but that relationship doesn't cost you anything, you're not willing to pay any cost... You don't love that person. If you expect everybody to orbit around you, you don't love people, you're leveraging people. Our God doesn't leverage us. He's not a cosmic narcissist that needs something from us. Our God loved us. It cost him everything. His love cost him everything. He emptied himself. This is the picture of glorious grace, a transcendent God who is eminent and with us. This is all taking place over the Passover. 
ironically a time when the high priest uh, is supposed to be looking for a sacrificial lamb. And of course they're crucifying the sacrificial lamb. It's taking place over Passover, this defining moment in Israel's history when uh, God passed the tenth plague and he saved his people from death in Egypt. He saved them from judgment. And God made a way to be spared from judgment. God made a way, a provision, to be spared from death. That death and judgment would pass over. And it was to trust in his provision. It was a sacrifice. Anyone who trusted in the sacrifice provided by God would not face the judgment of God. The judgment passed over. So they called the lamb that they ate each and every year at Passover, the Passover lamb. The very first Passover, they marked the doorpost with its blood, and then the family sat down and they cooked the, the lamb and they ate it together. There's a picture here that we have to grasp, and it's that God's believing in God's provision, receiving God's salvation, is not something that you do externally outside you. You internalize it. You ingest it. Personally, you absorb it. You welcome it. And so they would eat this Passover meal together. It was, a, it was a picture of how salvation has always been faith in God's substitutionary sacrifice. And you know, every year for thousands of years, the one presiding over the Passover meal would say something to the effect of, this is the bread of affliction which was eaten by our fathers in the wilderness. For thousands of years they would hear that. This is the bread of affliction which was eaten by our fathers in the wilderness. And here's Jesus presiding over this Passover meal. And he changes the script. And his disciples are almost mouthing the words, like you mouth the words when I say the script every Sunday as we're eating the Lord's table. It's like you could mouth some of the things that I say. I say them so often, intentionally. It's like the disciples are about to mouth the words, this is the bread of our fathers. Uh, This is the bread of affliction, what was eaten by our fathers. And Jesus changes the script. This bread is my body. He interrupts a script that they'd been hearing for thousands of years and he, make, he puts himself at the center of the deliverance. He puts himself at the center of, uh, the, the one, of salvation, the one who would lead humanity on the ultimate exodus. The ultimate exodus from our common enemy of death. The one who would lead us from death to life. And just as then that first Passover, they, you know, God brought deliverance from death by the blood of the Lamb. This Passover in the upper room is being observed the night before God would bring deliverance from the finality of death by the blood of Jesus. And you know, the Passover was not a vegetarian dish. For thousands of years, every, if you read the Old Testament, you read through, read from, read from, uh, uh, from Exodus to uh, Deuteronomy. And every time the Passover is mentioned, lamb is mentioned. Because the family would sit down and eat the lamb. And here we are at this Passover. And all four gospel writers, they talk about the bread on the table. They talk about the wine on the table. But none of them mention the lamb on the table. It's like they're all inviting us to see the lamb is seated at the table. The sacrificial lamb, the one, the ultimate sacrifice. The one who would take on the sin of humanity. That Christ alone is there. And it's this glorious picture of grace with Christ at the center of it. Traditionally, they would eat this with their family. And all of these disciples have families, so what's Jesus doing? He's establishing a new family. He's establishing the basis of unity for his family. He is doing what God wanted from the beginning, which is he is establishing this global, diverse, cross-cultural family 
that is unified by one thing, the grace of Christ alone. The basis of God's family, what he's wanted since Genesis, spoiler alert, what he's going to have in Revelation, and what you and I get to enjoy today, is that here at Redeemer, our unity is not based on our levels of education, our socioeconomic levels, the circles that we happen to go in, our circles of friends, our political leanings, our views on how the government is handling COVID. None of these things are the basis of our unity, our ethnicity, who your mommy was, who your daddy was, what your family's from, what country you're from. The basis of our unity is Christ alone, that we are united to him by grace. And we come here, this beautiful, diverse family. This is all being established by Christ as he's making himself the bread, the cup, the center of salvation, the center of deliverance. And then the text moves from this Passover meal and takes us to the garden. And there Jesus is with his sleepy friends as he's being tormented. This image of the disparaging difference between God's immeasurable generosity and our human inadequacy. And I don't know if you've ever had friends let you down deeply. I don't know if you've ever had someone in your life betray you. But you, you, in your flesh, you tend to not continually move towards those people. And if they continue to hurt you deeply over and over, um, you tend to kind of back away from them. And Jesus, in his distress, is asking them just to stay awake so that they could be with him in his pain. And they're sleeping. And here we have this vivid record of the Son of God asking the Father to change the circumstances. But at the same time, he's not trying to take control of the circumstances of his life. He's trusting his father with the circumstances of his life, which gives a glorious picture to you and I on the other side of the cross. But we, in the hands of God, by, by grace alone, can trust God with the circumstances of our life. And so while, Judas, while, while Jesus is there and his friends are sleeping and he's praying, Judas shows up with the mob. They have swords. Of course they have swords. Because every historical revolution in the history of mankind is the same old thing at the top of the list. Power and politics. And everybody's grabbing their swords or the metaphorical swords. And so, of course, they come with swords because they think Christ's kingdom is just going to be a regurgitated version of every other kingdom. Swap out the power at the top. The gospel writers record that Peter pulls out his sword. This is how you do things. But Jesus Christ is a king like, unlike any other king. And he says, put away your sword. And so, the kingdom that Christ was bringing was not about swapping out the current people in power and then putting his disciples in power. The cross reveals this king of majesty and meekness, one like the world has never seen. Christ the king, not coming to bear judgment. I'm sorry, not coming to bring judgment, but coming to bear our judgment. Christ the King, whose kingdom is cross-shaped, self-emptying, giving. He's the King of hearts. And this plays out in how you and I live in this city. This plays out in how we live on Monday. Because Christ the King, He's the King of our heart. Our world operates in certain power systems, but those are not the things that motivate and move us. We're motivated, animated, and moved by another power. And it is by the power of the king of our hearts. And then the passage moves from, from this scene in Gethsemane to Jesus appearing before the courts. And he's on, the tr he's on trial for his life. He's called to the witness stand. The high priest says, hey, are you the Messiah? And I hope you caught Jesus' answer. He just drops a bomb straight out of Exodus and he says, I am. 
So that probably got the hair standing up on the back of their necks a bit. And then after he says that, he just pushes it even further. And he says something that's so provocative that it causes this emotional explosion. Causes, well, there wasn't any jurisprudence in the first place, but if there were any, it was out the window. Now there's this religious brouhaha breaking out. How does this happen? What does Jesus say? Jesus is looking at the people who have him on trial. He's looking at them in the eye. He says, he says, I'm the son of man. You'll see me, the son of man, coming sitting on the right hand of power. That means he's claiming to have the power of God to judge them. The son of man sitting at the right hand of power. That is an unequivocal divine claim. That's a power claim. He looks him right in the eye and he says it. And then he pushes it further. He says, coming on the clouds of heaven. He's not talking about water vapor. The clouds of heaven, the glory, the presence, the power of God. Look at what's going on. This is why the high priest tears his clothes, goes full Hulkamania, and goes, what are you going to do, brother? Because he's claiming to be divine. When you look at what's going on here, while they stood there presuming to judge Jesus and put him on trial, Jesus says, I am the divine judge, and I am the one with the power to put you on trial. Radical paradox that Christ the King provokes everybody to see the judge over the entire world is being judged by the world. And then the passage moves and it takes us to the cross. And all four gospel writers make sure to let us know it was eerily dark. It was 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. when you do the hour translation. It was uncharacteristically dark. It was supernaturally dark. It was scarily dark. Darkness throughout all of scripture is always a sign of God's judgment. It's a For the modern mind, we look at this judgment, we listen to the language of judgment. The modern mind says, I don't think I like a God that has wrath and judgment. I want a God of love. Maybe we can can change this and, and shift this so that we can have a good Friday and not talk about judgment and not talk about uh, this God of, of, uh, of anger. Well, here's the problem with that. See, if you love somebody deeply and their life is headed into ruin, that's going to make you angry. And you're right to be angry. And if you love somebody very, very deeply, and their life is headed into ruin, either by their own actions or by the, ang- the actions of others, you are going to want judgment. You're, you are going to be angry, and you are going to want there to be right judgment. And you're right to want that. In fact, if somebody that you claim to love is spiraling into destruction and you sit there and you wink at it and you're like, you know, it's all okay in the end. I would argue you don't love that person very deeply. If you're not, if the destruction of their life doesn't move you to anger, there's no love there. So you see the modern constructs of this modern God who has no judgment and no anger and no wrath is not more loving. That construct of God is absolutely unloving. Any God who looks on injustice, oppression, a world of endless hurt that's come through the selfishness of our life, and then he winks at it, and he says, no, there's going to be no judgment. That God is a nightmare. That God is not worthy of worship. But the God of Good Friday, Christ who wraps himself in the clothes of creation, God, our God who comes and condescends, who comes into our darkness, who comes in, suffers under injustice, suffers under the impression, knows rejection, knows our pain, knows what it is to be human, bears all of it, 
redeems us from it, redeems us from the eternal consequences of the guilt of our sin, promises to restore all things by the glory of His grace. Easter Sunday, we celebrate that He rises from death, the end of death. That God is worthy of worship. The God who gets angry at the destruction of the ones that He loves. This is the God that is worthy of worship. The cross is the intersection of mercy and judgment. It is the judgment that we all deserve, uh, deserve and the mercy that none, of, that none of us deserve that God offers freely for all who place their trust and their faith in Christ alone. And so look at where God pours out the judgment, church. It's why Good Friday is good. He pours out the judgment on himself. This is the message of Christianity. This is the good news. The God who loves you so deeply, he was willing to go against himself to pour the judgment on himself. Where is your judgment, Christian? It's on Christ. Where is the power that motivates you to put off your sin and put on the new humanity and live to the glory of Christ and bend your knee, bend your knee in obedience to him and train your children to do the same? Where is the power for that? It is in the wonder of Christ. It is in the wonder of the cross. It is in the marveling of what has come this Good Friday to you and I by God's grace alone. In a world of chron chronic disappointments, chronic tears, chronic pain, sorrows, comes this good news. Remember the good news of this cross, church. Cling to this cross. Cling to Christ in the chaos. And though Jesus cries out, why, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, and if you're writing a legend, by the way, and if Jesus was just a legend, then you're not going to put the, the front runner of your movement. You're not going to put the words in his mouth, hey, I claim to be God and also my, God has forsaken me. That's how, you, that's how to not start a global movement. So you've got to ask yourself how in the world that the, 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 the uh, faith in the Christ and the resurrection exploded in the first century when he was being crucified like a common criminal. And then he's crying out that God forsook him. It is, of course, because Easter Sunday is real. And the resurrection was witnessed. And Jesus cries out, my God. But this is a language of intimacy. When God promised in his covenant, his covenant promise was, I will be your God, you will be my people. So Jesus is crying out, my God. And why is he crying that out? What is the worst thing in the world, friends? The worst thing in the world is the loss of love. The worst thing in the world is the death of one you love. The worst thing in the world is death of love. The worst thing in the world is the death of a relationship with someone that you love. You know, after church, if one of you comes up to me and you go, I don't think I really like that sermon, and I don't, really like, I don't know that I like Redeemer, and Paul, I'm not sure how I feel about you, and uh, I'm never going to see you again. You know, that would make me sad, but to be honest, I'd get over it. I mean, I love you, but I don't care what you think of me that much. More than I should, but not that much. But you know if after the service, Susan came up to me and she said, I never want to see you again? I would be destroyed. Peter and Rick would be preaching for weeks on end. Because it would destroy me. Because the deeper the intimacy, the deeper the love, the deeper the torment of the loss of love. And Jesus is crying out, my God, because he is experiencing this dislocation of this eternal love that he has enjoyed from eternity past. And he's crying out, my God, the loss of love. He's experiencing, he is taking on your judgment 
to alleviate you of judgment. He is experiencing the dislocation and the separation of being forsaken so that you and I can be forgiven. This is what's happening. This is what he is taking on for you and for I. From the beginning of, since Genesis 3, the way to God has been closed. And here on the cross, Christ tears it wide open as the veil is torn from the top to the bottom. Our Christian faith is not an exercise in religious box checking where we try and gain God's acceptance by working our way up. Good Friday is good because our God came all the way down. The veil was torn all the way down. And in this passage, as I close, it takes us to the very first person after the death of Christ on the cross who finds salvation, and it's a Roman centurion. The Roman centurion presiding over Christ's death on the cross finds salvation through Christ's death on the cross. He watches Jesus die, and he says, surely this man is the Son of God. We would not pick this guy as a candidate for grace, the coins in his pouch would have been stamped Tiberius Caesar Divifilius Augustus. Divifilius, son of. The son of the divine. And in Rome, Caesar was Lord. The coins that were stamped in his pocket would have said Caesar is Lord. And he looks at Christ on the cross, crucified like the other criminals with him. And he looks at him and he hears the cry as Christ cries out to his father. And he looks and his eyes are open. His heart is melted. And he says, Caesar's not Lord. Christ is Lord. Despite all the horror and the terror on the cross, his eyes are opened by the tenderness on the cross. May our eyes be opened by this tenderness on the cross. The good news of the gospel to you today. That Jesus provided the life of of love that God requires from you. He has taken the guilt of your sin from you. By grace, he unites himself to you. And he gives his perfect righteous record to you. In 33 AD, in our human history, on that first Good Friday, it was the beginning of the end of the tyranny of death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray.